Hello and welcome to the back half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Kate. And we are here with a bumper episode in our new fortnightly incarnation. Today we are going to be talking about the show that everyone's literally killing each other to see in uh, London's West End, Hamilton, the hip-hop musical about founding father Alexander Hamilton. And what else have we got, Kate? We're going to be talking about the return of a very disgusting object to the City of London, which we went to see this morning. And we're also going to have a special guest, Ryan Gilby, our film critic from The New Statesman, to talk about Loveless, the Russian movie about a missing child. But we need to wait for Ryan to pronounce the director's name, because neither of us because are we confident enough. The first name is Andre, and the surname begins with a Z. And has too many consonants. Yeah, it's got lots of H's and Z's and G's G's. and B's. Um, But Ryan will know exactly how to say that. And he'll also have something to say about the film. So last night we went to see Hamilton in Victoria, which as hip-hopras go, it's fair to say it beats um, R. Kelly's Trapped in the Closet by a country mile. Although I do love that. And that ran for 33 chapters on um, his own YouTube channel. There was a period where just, um, I think this was the period where whenever we had friends over, um, me and Claire, after dinner, you'd always have like a YouTubing session where Mm. you just show each other videos on YouTube. That was, that was the time where I remember everyone watching uh, in the closet. The epic tale yeah. of love and deceit, yeah. which he never managed to put on Broadway because he wasn't in the right place Did at the right time. Did he want it on stage? Oh yeah, it was a big, it was a big conceit of a, yeah, a Broadway show. He was just ahead of the boat, you know, was, whereas yeah. Lynn, Lin-Manuel Miranda was in the right place at the right time to write Hamilton, which is, give us a brief update on what Hamilton is about because it's extremely complicated. Well, um, Alexander Hamilton, and I don't know, obviously we are quite ignorant well i say we i mean me me too uh, possibly you i don't want to speak for you but um i suspect um a lot of people who've been through british school history system won't know much about american history or the the revolutionary war or uh, of independence or the founding fathers alexander hamilton was one of the founding fathers his face is on the ten dollar bill and the musical tells his his story, which is one of the lesser told stories of the Founding Fathers. He was born on a Caribbean island in the 1750s. He was born out of wedlock. There's a bastard son of a Scottish father and a mother who was half British and half French. His father left, went off somewhere, found another wife. His mother died when he was very young. For most of his childhood, he was he was growing up an orphan, um, taken in by other family members. He became a clerk, very, very bright, very, very voracious reader. Eventually, there was this catastrophic event, a hurricane struck, and he wrote this incredible account of it, which various members of the community saw this and thought, wow, this guy is incredibly talented. And they passed a cup around and basically got, got together enough money to send him off to North America for his education. So that's where he ended up in New York. It was around the time that the War of Independence was starting in 1775. And he made his way up through the ranks, joined the revolutionaries, ended up working as an aide to George Washington. Then after the war, trained as a lawyer, set up the Bank of America, was instrumental in in getting the constitution through, wrote 
I think there's one bit in the musical where they talk about how many essays he wrote in support of the constitution. I think it was 51 essays. In six months. In six months. (laughs) What was the recurring line? Something like, um, why do you write like you're running out of time? Why do you write like you're running out of time? So yeah, he's always got a, he's always got a a quill, if not in his hand, somewhere near his hand. And then is killed um, aged around 50 in a, in a duel with one of his political rivals. That's the sort of span that the, uh, the musical takes as its, as its blueprint. But it's, it's got a kind of interesting gestation story because it, it was first glimpsed quite a long time ago, mm. wasn't it? It was um, so general, apparently musical genius, um, singer, composer, choreographer, musical theatre man, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is New York born, um, took on holiday, as you would, um, Ron Chernow's biographies of Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> I've seen this book. It's giant. It's, it's an yeah, absolute doorstop. So it says something about Lynn that he would take that on holiday. I remember we did a um, summer book special and some of our, our novelist contributors uh, claimed that they were reading some giant tomes on the beach. Yeah. Um, I like the fact you're calling him Lynn, by the way. It, it just Yeah, you should make... <laughs> it just makes me associate him with Alan Partridge's... Do you know where that comes from? Lynn! Um, It's actually because our deputy, um, Helen Lewis, is a big fan of his and she always just refers to him by his first name. I think it's like a hopeful, you know, if if you're familiar enough, then one day you will meet this man. So he decided that this this very long, complicated story was perfect for a stage musical. And it came about in a very organic way because he wrote a rap about Hamilton that he performed at the White House Evening of Poetry, Music and the Spoken Word on uh, May the 12th, 2009. So Obama was in, Mm. everything was good. And it kind of went down quite well. And then he started sort of performing mixtapes, as he called it, which were just little fragments of this story, performing them around New York. And it sort of got a bit of traction that way. But it's it's interesting because I think one of the songs, um, My Shot, he claims to have taken a year to write. So there must have been an element of character identification here with the idea of someone that can sit down and write 51 different documents in six months. Absolutely. And yeah. someone who can write, you know, take one, you know, one, a whole year to do one song. It's a, a weirdly literary kind of, uh, I think your wife Claire uh, referred to it as a kind of um, pro-literacy musical yeah. <laughs> being a, a great teacher as she is and I just thought it was so interesting you've got whole songs that are about you know writing oneself into the narrative or quibbling about one comma in a sentence and what it means and it, on, on so many levels it's so unlikely to work as a stage musical but this is one of the ways in which the rap form is so perfectly suited for it isn't it because in terms of words per minute yeah. you know rap provides this kind of absolutely um loquacious it's sort of like verbal verbal quickfire dexterous um, intellectual medium yeah absolutely which is perfectly suited to a story that just twists and turns and that you know children at school presumably would have struggled to learn unless they had mnemonics and rhymes to do so so i mean it's almost like something that you would have got um, mocked in a victoria wood sketch in the 80s you know what's the the least sexy subject matter for a for a musical but it sort of lives up to the idea that if you do something really 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 well you can get away with anything Absolutely. It, it seems watching this, you kind of think, why isn't all history delivered in this in this format? But in the wrong hands, it could be absolutely disastrous. But clearly, Lin Manuel Miranda has a innate feeling for hip hop. He obviously grew up on it. He's around our age, so 
you know, he would have grown up on the same 90s hip hop mm. that we would have been listening to. Helen wrote a piece about Hamilton late last year and, and she mentioned his influences being Buster Rhymes, Biggie Smalls, Brandy, Destiny's Child. He knows how to write rap, which is which is kind of really hard to do, to do well. And, and um, the average sort of English teacher trying to sort of tell the story of Henry VIII through a, through a made-up rap in the classroom <laughs> probably would, would get it massively wrong. There's literally a moment where one of the characters goes, ah, oh, the Reynolds papers. <laughs> and they're referring to the uh, affair that Hamilton had and the documents he had to provide to show that this money had been delivered to this blackmailer in a kind of above-board way. But, you know, the suspension of belief when you're in the theatre there and you're so excited by the way the music sounds that you hear a line like that and you think, oh, goody, we're going to hear about the Reynolds papers. This thing that I've never never heard of in my life and probably most people in America haven't heard of either. One thing that's extraordinary about it is there's almost no non-musical speech in it so it's just song after song after song everything is couched within everything is framed within raps and um, um, most of it's rapping and then there's 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 a few kind of numbers which verge more on kind of traditional Broadway territory but it's like um, the soundtrack is about two and a half hours mm. and the show's about two hours 35 or something so it's about 30 seconds so, of speech yeah, it's in, it's incredible to to sustain that for me it was the the thing that really um i was never that bothered about seeing it until we realized that we were going to be able to go and then it's the it's the sheer sophistication of the the musical kind of palette that it pulls from. Yeah. It does feel like a whirlwind tour of 1990s and, and mid-2000s hip-hop. You've got, like you were saying, Destiny's Child. You've got the Skylar sisters, three female characters, sisters, who sing in this beautiful, on vogueish Destiny's Child-type harmony. Yeah, then you've got um, Constitution delivered in the form of a battle straight out of 8 Mile. It's kind of, There's a lot of Eminem in there as well. It's quite sort of, it's commercial hip-hop, isn't it? And then you, you, we actually saw that the guy who was playing his, his nemesis, Aaron Burr, who was um, the third vice president of the United States and eventually, not to ruin the story, had a duel with him, uh, was the understudy last night, a guy called Sisypho Mazibuko, who I just thought was the complete star of the thing, who had actually the R. Kelly soft R&B delivery, not a kind of yeah. great big chess beating musical theatre performance at all and he's the linchpin of the of the show isn't he because it's he's the sort of narrator he introduces it Hamilton although Hamilton is the crux of the show and a fascinating character he kind of but there's something weirdly appealing about Burr um and he's got this kind of he is a striver as well but he has this great song about when Hamilton and um Jefferson uh, cut a deal really significant um deal in terms of it's can you explain what this is it's no actually, no this, idea most is, of it was like that for this me. is just this no is idea. one one of the slight problems i had with it is although it's, it was a brilliant method for um for explaining uh history there was there is this point in the second uh second half of the show where um hamilton is pitched against thomas jefferson who's who's portrayed as this kind of like a purple rain era prince he's, he's kind <laughs> yeah. of like comes crushed down in velvet this jacket. crushed velvet jacket he's from virginia he's just got back from france uh uh he has this um he has this great song where he's just got back from france and he he's like what did what, i miss what did i miss yeah <laughs> um and him and him and hamilton are at loggerheads um and hamilton has this um much more kind of 
commercial urban entrepreneurship um, vision. And Jefferson is from the South, so it's a more agrarian concept of what the states should be and kind of defending the interests of the South. But I had to kind of go up and go away and read up on that a little bit because although it pitched them brilliantly um, in terms of like oppositional characters, it didn't really explain I thought it could have done a little bit more to explain where they were coming from politically. That's a long detour to say there's a great scene where they're cutting this really important deal over dinner. And Aaron Burr um, has this song about wanting to be in the room where it happens. Mm. What Um, was he referring to? I didn't have a clue. Well, he was just saying, they're in this room cutting this deal. I'm on the other side of the door. I want to be in the room when these decisions are made. Mm. I thought that really touched on something really kind of key about political life like um you know i don't know watching the west wing you get that feeling like you know there's all these doors with rooms behind yeah them and um you want to be in the one where the actually the decisions are being yeah, made yeah. and they're not always the kind of official meeting rooms there. he had so many great lines as well because he, he was full of those sort of home truths at the beginning his advice to hamilton very early on was talk less and smile more mm-hmm. which is just great kind of made my hair stand on end you know kind of think about that in the workplace generally rabbiting on excusing yourself or apologizing for yourself or whatever and actually the people who rise up in the workplace are the ones who are just really silent and quiet and self-contained and hamilton never really takes that advice does he because he's 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 like a man of great principle and and um and he can't stop himself so even when he has this affair he ends up writing an entire pamphlet admitting to it rather than just sort of filing it away. Sort of verbal diarrhea, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Burr says to him that every time you put one of your thoughts outside, it's ammunition for someone to Mm. use back against you, which is just just amazing. The Schuyler sisters you mentioned briefly, and the, is it Angelica? The um, Yeah, um, the one he's in love with, but didn't marry. But didn't marry. The third Skylar sister doesn't really get oh, much yeah, she to do. Come she, back. I think she's Peggy. Um, she just the, there's a great scene where they're introduced and they're all in these kind of like um, Disney coloured ball gowns and they have a they have a great song and but Angelica is immediately pitched as the kind of smartest one and she's sort of already quoting Thomas Jefferson and she's got a real you know she's got a real Destiny's Child move to her but she has a great one, one of the best songs in it. Um, I think Aaron Burr has a couple of fantastic songs but she she has one of the best songs where um she replays a the scene in which she introduces hamilton to um her sister eliza who he goes on to marry and she replays it imagining what it would have been like if it was if it was her in that position and it's those moments where as you say the musical breadth of the thing is it could have so easily plodded along on this expository rapping you know it's quite mm. easy to, the, the, I assumed that was the opening was number like. is actually in that mode although yeah. it's good the opening number is is very much here's the information in this here's your history yeah, teacher yeah, doing yeah. it in a cool way um, but it takes it in all uh, all sorts of directions I love um, the idea when I left the theatre I was just thinking that there is going to be a whole generation of children in America and maybe in this country too and maybe all over the world who grow up thinking that these founding fathers were mixed race it's just the way a child's brain works isn't it you see that oh yeah he was a black guy and then their parents go no no actually Alexander Hamilton wasn't and it's just that idea of that that massive subversion of, of history in this way that kind of completely ties together on the stage and you don't even think about when you're watching it. Yeah, so it's majority non-white cast. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of completely multicultural task, cast. And um, when, they, when Mike Pence came to watch the show, either last year or the year before, I'm not sure, um, they addressed him at the end. They got up at the end and said, look, you know, 
we are a multicultural cast. Many of us are immigrants. This is a show about an immigrant. Um, we're very worried about what your administration has in store for us. Um, you know, I hope you've taken, uh, thanks very much for coming and I hope you've taken something from this evening. And I, to be fair, I think he actually took it in reasonably good spirits. But of course, Trump tweeted the next day, you know, absolutely disgraceful, harassing Pence and then tried to <laughs> tried to start this sort of boycott Hamilton thing, which was completely pointless because the thing sold out, you know, solidly for the next <laughs> what two years. What was Pence's job at that point? He's vice president. Oh, okay, because yeah, there's a great a... line that says, you know, vice president, we all know that's not a real job, yeah, which yeah. you wonder whether that was literally written in on the night <laughs> on when the night. they saw him on the guest list. Um, <laughs> other, one of the other great sort of slogans in it is uh, immigrants get things done. Yes. So, yeah. so the idea of uh, his sheer uh, energy and and ability to apply himself to the task has something to do with the fact that what's the line um he has uh which is repeated it's like something like um just like this country i'm young scrappy and hungry um <laughs> so it it's, he's very much framed as an immigrant figure um and celebrated as such were you saying something about like there was a slavery um, song that was cut out of the yeah. Eventual. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of complications about you know, like like any like any history, they've um, they've kind of been very selective. But I thought it was it was interesting that although slavery is mentioned in passing, it's never really explored. I think having a majority non-white cast makes it kind of difficult for them to to do that to set it up as a big issue. But actually, they did write a rap battle about slavery. And then Miranda just took it out. I guess basically it didn't really fit the narrative arc because none of them were really so committed that they actually wanted to do anything immediate about it. Hamilton was kind of pro-abolition, so he wasn't a fan of slavery. But at the same time, the Schuyler family owned slaves. After the war, he corresponded on the Schuyler's behalf in, in terms of retrieving lost slaves, purchasing mm. slaves. It wasn't his sort of number one priority. He was also, and you do get hints of this, and I, I think they could have gone a bit further in exploring some of these slightly darker elements of his personality. He was a relentless social climber. He was a serious kind of supporter of commerce, very hard-nosed. And he was also something which doesn't hugely come out in the show, but which historians have written about. He was a real elitist. So his his vision of American democracy was a group of very educated, privileged, elite people ruling ruling the masses. He didn't have huge trust for the masses to make to make great political decisions. And also he was, you know, they, they do explore it in the this production that he was a philanderer as well. Yes, he liked yeah. the ladies. And in a way I find it odd that the character of Hamilton that you're watching on stage is quite a clear-eyed, sort of noble, innocent figure in a way, even though the actions that he's portraying are political machinations, pragmatism, and all that kind of interesting Machiavellian yeah. world. And there's something about the performance itself that, that sort of didn't quite take in the, the variety of that character and could yeah. have gone, I suppose maybe because you had Burr alongside it, you're mm. looking at the, sort of the dark, tortured figure versus the kind of the, the noble misunderstood one but yeah there was they could have done more with that maybe it's worth looking up helen lewis's piece which she wrote for us late last year talking about it really as a as a play for the obama era but it does have a kind of a real resonance now and um you know it's kind of slightly heartbreaking when you look back to things like um in 2016 um lin-manuel miranda did a little skit on saturday night live where 
there's a song in which the refrain is never going to be president now, which is what they sing to Hamilton after this this revelation has come out about his uh, his infidelities. And it was after all the the Trump pussy grabbing stuff came yeah. out. And on Saturday Night Live, he like sings to a portrait of Trump, you know, never going to be president now, you know. Yeah. Of course, you know, it's... In, in Helen's <laughs> words, it was the Obama musical. Yeah, sadly the same. <laughs> Just afterwards, yeah. Did not apply. But also, hopefully it'll put a firecracker up the ass of musical theatre because... Absolutely, The problem yeah. with musical theatre is that all the music sounds like pastiche and is forgettable. Yeah. Whereas this is so slick that, you know, maybe it's going to make people write better and it's not just going to be jukebox musicals from now on, but who knows? And people have been, you know, there were lots of people there last night, and I think this is quite common, who knew the music. They've yeah. been listening to the album for months before they've got to see the show, which is, I can't... Cheering seems, along with the Reynolds papers. Yeah, it seems unprecedented. To me. <laughs> but if you can get tickets, beg, borrow or steal, because it is, it, it is genuinely an extraordinary piece of work. 
and they started working on it with the power hoses and um, when they couldn't do any more with the power hoses they had to deploy small hand pickaxes and shovels and just break it up like that <laughs> so the sewers the victorian uh, sewers of london are you know your average sort of little brick tunnels yeah. but the fatberg is a depressingly modern phenomenon this is what really strikes me about this is actually the last 10 years so in our very environmentally conscious age we have created this this very thing and the main culprit is face wipes when my drains blocked at my flat the plumber was like it's wipes it's wipes stop using the wipes because they're not biodegradable so most other things do actually go down, like toilet paper. It reminded me of, have you ever been around the Paris sewers? No, I haven't. It's really great. There's a trip and you just see this giant concrete ball, like something out of um, Indiana Jones, that rolls down the tunnels, crushing all the crap in its oh, way. Oh, wow. Um, but the, yeah, the, the London sewers look much smaller. They're tiny. There's, a, there's a photograph of one of the, um, one of the engineers uh, working on the Fatberg in there. And, you know, he's, he's hunched over in this, in this tiny space. It was eight or nine of these guys working nine hour days for nine weeks to remove this thing. There was a lot of, um, they were overstating just how toxic this stuff is in the, in the Museum of London. They said it has to be carried in. It, 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 the thing itself, let's, let's talk about what yeah, the thing yeah, itself looked okay. like. We've built this up way too how much. Did, how did you imagine it before you went to the museum? A giant gelatinous yellow mass, maybe with a face and teeth or something like that. And actually, what did it look like? It was a sort of, small lump of kind of dirty moon rock in a Tupperware box. Yeah. And they'd carried it out of the out of the labs in um, three different casings because apparently one whiff of this thing will just kill you stone dead. <laughs> um, it looked like sort of crude concrete, but apparently it's very light and it has a very waxy covering. So yeah, they like to... We actually, we got some tote bags with Fatberg on and we got some... What was the other thing in the bag? Fudge, Some fudge, sludge, branded as sludge. But yeah, you go into this, um, uh, I mean, it, it, it's a fascinating little exhibition, but you go into this small room and it's darkened, you know, they've deliberately, they've deliberately displayed these, there's, there's two separate boxes with um, uh, chunks of the Fatberg in them and they've deliberately displayed them as if they are in the British Museum, you know, as if they are some... Um, chunk of Tutankhamun's tomb or some, you know... <laughs> Excavated Roman yeah, burial or, site. Yeah, or Inuit um, uh, reindeer carving or something. Um, uh, but they are just this sort of... <laughs> the London Inuits. Small lump of horrible stuff in a, in a, in a Tupperware box. But they are kind of fascinating and, and um, you can't really make out the constituent parts of them. One of them has a little double-decker wrapper poking out of it. Um, oh, which reminds me actually that they the big plan with the Fatberg is to render it down into biodiesel yes. and use it to power London's buses, London's yes. double deckers. So that's the um, sort of necessary happy ending yeah. that we need for this story. Isn't it? <laughs> it's not going to happen because actually we don't know where the rest of the Fatberg is. It's kind of been broken up. <laughs> They're working on maybe it. Maybe it's been sold off in auction houses. Maybe it's on eBay, <laughs> but you can't have it in your house, obviously, because it smells of quote rotting meat with the odor of a smelly toilet. It's weird to think of all this modern stuff living in the Victorian sewers and the way in which we think of the of Victorian London as being like infected by smog and pollution and kind of a, a horrifically kind of unenvironmentally friendly place to live. And now, I guess, not only have we got this sort of declining air quality problem. But we're also just growing these mm. giant kind of eco disasters <laughs> underneath in the in the ground underneath. And us. Victorian effluent was probably fairly easy to manage yeah. compared to what we're producing. Yeah, yeah. But they're thinking about making these uh, these chunks um, part of the the 
the regular permanent exhibition. So no matter what time you next get to the Museum of London, you might be able to see the Berg. Ryan, thanks very much for coming in again. Hi, Tom. Good to be here. You are first going to tell us how to pronounce the name of the <laughs> director of Loveless. I'm just going to take a run at it. I think it's Jagazev. Jagazev. Yeah. Okay. Andrei Jagazev. Um, you met for us, didn't you? I did, yeah. Ago. When he was over here for the London Film Festival. It was one of the interviews that's through a, a, an interpreter. And he's quite kind of taciturn anyway, I think. Man of few words. But yeah, such a powerful director. And when you were interviewing him, he drew a picture yeah, one of my prized possessions now. It was, a, it was a landscape. He was just sketching it during the interview. And then all the way through the interview, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to have that. And then I asked him at the end. <laughs> so bold. Because he's, he's one of my favourite directors. So Did he sign it? He did, yeah. Wow. Was it good or was it just basically like it's, a little uh, I can't really see whether it's got any artistic merit. He's such a great filmmaker. That's all I can see. I'd have the napkin that he wiped his mouth on after dinner, you know. <laughs> I once had a um, beer glass that Roger Taylor from Queen had drunk out of on stage and I got the roadie to pass it down and it had a little bit of beer in it and I knocked it back. <laughs> I wanted to catch a cold from Roger Taylor. How did I know how that story that, that story was going to involve Roger Taylor? Yeah, unfortunately <laughs> I've done it I've done it so many times. But no, Jackie said Roger Taylor, I mean they're all on the same, same kind same of yeah, thing, level. Same so I watched The Return and had, hadn't seen any of his, his films in between. So this is his sort of, is it third or fourth? This is his fifth film. Fifth film, yeah. right. The Return was 2003. Mm. He'd been an actor before in Moscow, stage, stage actor, and done some kind of um, commercials, I think, as well. And then, yeah, he jacked it all in to be a director and won the Golden Lion at Venice with his first go. And, um, yeah, I think the, the film after that, The Banishment, was was a bit of a, I think it was kind of second album syndrome, you know, it was uh, a bit of a come down. But since then, they've been excellent. Uh, Elena, Leviathan, and now, now Loveless. And this is, Loveless is the story of a couple and their and their son maybe you could just briefly tell us yeah they're going through a very acrimonious divorce and um the son kind of slips through the cracks i mean literally and kind of figuratively they're not really interested in him they're setting up their new lives with their new partners and um during all this he goes missing and um that happens very uh, near to the start of the film, about 20 minutes in. And then the rest of the film is about the search for him, kind of what it reveals about the parents. Um, one of the, I think actually Zagensev's favourite film is Antonioni's La Ventura, which is about a similar situation. But this is a much, um, you know, La Ventura is quite a cold film. It's about a girl who goes missing and the friend she's on holiday with start to look for her, and then gradually by the end of the film, they've completely forgotten about her. Wow. <laughs> Whereas this is, uh, you know, Antonio's very kind of stark alienation kind of thing. But this is much more... Um, I think this is a much more distressing film. Mm. I mean, he really puts you through the ringer and puts yeah. his characters through the ringer. He he does, and at the same time, I think that it was sustained by the energy of this incredible search and rescue team that you mention is in your piece is actually a real thing. Yeah, it's a it's voluntary organisation. Right, Lisa Alert, I think. Or well, Lisa Alert. Um, yeah, uh, it was. Um, I think it's to do with a girl who went missing with her aunt. I think in the forest uh, in two thousand and nine or ten in Russia. And um, yeah, a, a volunteers formed. I think there were kind of celebrations going on at some point in, at this point in Russia and um, there weren't police available to search. They'd all been deployed somewhere else. So volunteers got together. And when they found the girl and her aunt, um, I was reading, 
they they were dead, but it said if they'd found her a day earlier, they would have rescued her. Wow. So it remained after that, the organisation? Yeah, that's right. And it's kind of, um, yeah, just reading about it in the context of the film, it's, um, yeah, it's completely voluntary. And there just isn't a, there isn't a kind of department for missing The police don't do that. No, and you see the police in the film, uh, the the guy in the film who comes first to the apartment to speak to the mother says, you've got a better chance if you get get in touch with these volunteers. One of the moments to me that just showed how um, this chilling lack of, um, panic on the part of the parents once they realise he's gone missing is when they are searching, the father's searching with this team and he just gestures towards the river and says, what about in there? Yeah. And what father <laughs> would actually suggest to I know, <laughs> that their child might be under the water that, rather than that alive? That sense of detachment and not really... Don't you feel with the father that he is really kind of dulled in a way? Yeah. He's kind of almost an ethos. I mean, the mum, for all her faults, she does leap into action and the father's just saying, oh, he'll turn up, mm, you know, at first. Mm. And she's the one who kind of, you know, I mean, she's constantly on her mobile phone and she says several times in the film she never wanted the kid in the first place. Um, but she is kind of uh, motivated and kind of energised by the search for him. No, I think it, I don't think it's I don't think it's kind of um, black and white about the parents, which is what I liked. At first, I thought, God, what awful parents. But then there's things in it like the mother suddenly kind of leaping into action and the father knowing all his son's um, online passwords, mm. which, so he can't be completely detached. Whereas from the him. mother, when asked by the search rescue guy, uh, you know, what's he into? She says, oh, nothing. He just sits at home, I think. Yeah. And the guy goes, you think? You know, it just shows how little you can know your own kids. Yeah, he's disappeared. If you're not paying attention. Exactly, he's disappeared long before he's actually disappeared. Yeah. But how, how symbolic is it? Because, you know, that's sort of my rudimentary knowledge of Russian filmmaking, I feel that Russian directors are known for making comments about the the country itself mm, in the form mm. of symbolism in the films. And, you know, you suggest in your piece that this boy is a, essentially a sort of sacrifice. You've got the whole we, idea of Mother Russia and all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, we should say that Jackins have uh, shot down my idea that he was yeah. a, a Christ figure. He, <laughs> he said, just Let's rolled not... his eyes. <laughs> he did a bit. Let's not go in that direction, he said. But yeah, I think I think there's definitely... Um, I mean, there's a, there's a scene near the towards the end of the film where where we see the mother jogging on a treadmill and she's wearing a tracksuit that says Russia on it. And so she's on this treadmill going nowhere slowly, basically. <laughs> um, which, which sounds obvious when you say it. I mean, it works in the film, I think. There, there does just seem to be a sense of, uh, I think, I don't know if it's about Russia specifically or, or kind of the modern world generally where we're so involved with kind of technology and things like that. That's the ball, the baldest kind of thing in the film, isn't it? Everybody's on their phones. Everybody's taking selfies. It's striking, um, isn't it? I, um, I've, I haven't seen many films where phone use is so accurately deployed. Like it really is, you know, she, it's the last thing she does before she, before she goes to bed at night, the first thing she does in the morning. And that's the case even before she's kind of locked into the whole search and rescue mission, you know, and that is, that's modern life. But, you know, for various reasons, films don't particularly want to engage with it. Well, plus it's not very cinematic exactly. for someone yeah. looking at their phone. Yeah. But yeah, there's a scene, isn't there, where she looks at his photo kind of almost tenderly on the phone. It's like, well, you never looked at him like that in real life. Yeah. Yeah. She can only kind of interpret it through the phone. I mean, I was sort of getting the message from it at one point that it's saying, you know, the sort of the authorities, the schools, the rescue team, they they are superficial and they are caring for this child where the parents are self-absorbed and fully digitalized and westernized and just completely wrapped up in themselves. But then you think about actually there is no police force really searching for him. It's almost about the triumph of kind of maybe community over individual when it comes down to it. They, yeah. He is cared for. They are searching around the clock from him. And it's his parents who are very selfish and self-absorbed are kind of dragged into that rather than forging ahead with it, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, I think that's where the hope in the film comes from, that through uniting, uh, I mean, again, that, you, you risk, it risk making it sound kind of banal, but mm. in, in, the, in the kind of unifying action of looking for the boy, um, there is this kind of humanity um, emerges 
from from the society you see as, as harsh as it is. The phones is an interest. The phones are interesting in the film um, because there's also they they tie in for me with this idea of family, the image of family being more important than than the reality. So people taking photos of experiences are more important than the experiences themselves. Because do you remember the dad in the film is so worried? Uh, his 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 big worry is um, that that his boss will find out he's getting divorced. Yeah, and that you know they're a very um, kind of what is it uh, orthodox Christian yeah. kind of um, very upright kind of right wing company he works for and it's all about the family and he gets told a story about a colleague who who possibly hired a woman and children to accompany him to a to a staff do yeah (laughs) yeah so he's big he's big thing and i don't even i'm not even sure if um, the dad in the film i'm not even sure if he's told his new girlfriend that he's got a son because oh, because he doesn't explain that he's looking, does yeah, he? Yeah, she phones him while he's with the police, yeah. and she says, "Put me on speakerphone." <laughs> so, yeah, do you remember? It's yeah. quite, it's quite chilling. I like, these little the, hints in the little flashes of um, news reports and everything, and you, what you're just saying about the company being a company that would frown upon an employee who was divorced. I wondered if there was a bit of a sort of dystopian twist to the Russia that he's painting there. I mean, there's a report at the end talking about lots of people in the Ukraine now live underground. And, and you know, you people may be driven to suicide by the current goings on. And it felt like almost like a 28 days later kind of yeah, Christopher was, Eccleston broadcast. That's right. And as, and as they're searching, they get into more and more dilapidated premises. There's that great, um, that great kind of tumble down building at the end that they're, that they're searching, which... Um, Looks like a school, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, which is just completely derelict and everything. Um, and there's, there are also radio broadcasts. You're right about that sense of kind of dread. There's radio broadcasts about... Um, about apocalyptic fervor. Do you remember about the Mayan calendar? Because it's 2012, isn't that's it? That's right, because it's, yeah. it's set in 2012. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's real rather than yeah. a kind of twisted future. Yeah, that's so this so sense of kind of creeping that. dread through society. The way it's shot as well adds a whole another layer to this in that you get these kind of beautifully framed images of the bear trees, snow. He loves his trees. He loves his trees. (laughs) That's why he was drawing them. The drawing was trees, yeah. You get this kind of um, incredible focus on specific details that because there's there's a slight kind of mystery thriller element to the plot, you can't help sort of start looking at them and thinking, is he trying to give us a, is he trying to give us a clue here? So you'll get kind of, you'll get a real slow zoom onto a, the root, the very gnarly roots of a tree. There's the, there's a sequence where the boy throws a piece of police tape up over a, over a branch. Then there's a very, very odd little five second sequence when we're going into a restaurant where we suddenly get, see things from the point of view of a random man who we haven't met. We don't even see his to face. Pick, trying to yeah. pick up an escort. Isn't that strange? Um, that <laughs> I love those. They're all quite sort of disorientating. And um, I guess on a very simple level, they just make you look closer at the at yeah. the images you're yeah, it's like in front of you. It's, it's like, like the film is teaching you, like saying, pay attention. Yeah. It's like Hanukkah-ish almost. Yeah. You know, you've got a big building. Which door is it that's going to open yeah. out of this mass of windows and doors? And stuff. Abso- and absolutely. In. Yeah, it's kind of training you to, to pay closer attention. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Hanukkah because I feel like Hanukkah does this sort of stuff um, quite cruelly, like Happy End, his most recent film, um, that has a lot of mobile phone stuff in it. And you said, oh, yes. okay, yeah, okay, it's the fall of civilization. We're all on our phones. Whereas with Jack and Sev, it seems to be about more than that. He's kind of sadness. shown us what we could have. Yeah, yeah. real sadness. Yeah, a, a dislodgement or something yeah. rather than a kind of uh, deceitfulness coming out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And he, ca- I think casting is really important here. He, the, the two kids that were in his first film, The Return, um, their faces are so distinctive. They're like these kind of 
bashed in potato <laughs> and the boy in this um who, who you see um see at the beginning of the film he's yeah his face is so it just stays with you so like throughout the film even mm. when they're searching for him it's amazing to have that central character be such a blank you know we don't we're never told much about him whenever we don't really get to know him we have there's there's two images in in the film which will stay with me forever one is don't say them <laughs> don't say Do them this is my bugbear because so many critics have given away a particular shot in this film and Zyagintsev yeah, himself is, and his producer were just livid about it because they've, they banned that shot from being in the trailer oh that's so interesting yeah I wonder which one it is I yeah. can't remember an now. insight into the film reviewers um, yeah I'll tell you when we're on there <laughs> no I remember you I remember you saying something about this but um, Ryan Gilby is he is the sort of equivalent of the search and rescue uh, <laughs> mission but just um, hunting down spoilers yeah. and eliminating him it's actually he's, he's, he's like the guys in the hazmat suit we just went to see the Fatberg in the oh, Museum right. of London this morning and uh, um, Ryan dons his hazmat suit and uh, <laughs> Uh, I just feel uh, like eliminate I'm, spoilers. I feel in my job I'm lucky enough to see stuff before anything yes. usually it before anything's been written about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and as much as possible I want to preserve that for the reader or um and yeah, there's a particular shot in the film and I I saw it in the London Film Festival this and went back afterwards and read the can reviews mm. and was just horrified that mm. pretty much every critic gave away this when we're off air, you've got to tell yeah, us which yeah, one it is. Yeah, and it is, it's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's a brilliant piece of filmmaking, but you have to kind of not know it's coming, really. But what, what's, <laughs> what's brilliant about the way he deals, deals with the child is that um, with so little, we feel so much for him, I guess. And this is up for an Oscar, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the competition is like for the foreign. Um, it's it's very strong competition. I've seen I've seen actually I've only seen one of the other films in competition, which is a fantastic woman. It's called a, a Chilean film, really brilliant, which um, I'll be reviewing in the magazine next month um, about a transgender woman who's um, persecuted by her lover's family. It's re it's really fantastic, almost um, Amadovar esque. And uh, there's another film uh, in competition, The Square, which is from the director of Force Majeure. Um, and that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes last year. So where Loveless won the Grand Jury Prize. So it's pretty good. Pretty stiff competition, yeah. Um, I can't remember the other two films, but... Are you going to be watching the Oscars overnight? I, I might do, actually. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> done it for years. But, March um, the 4th, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'm usually lucky if I can make it uh, to the end of news night, so we'll see. <laughs> My friends watched it at an Oscar party last year, but um, they'd all fallen asleep just before the envelope. Thing. So they they were they were texting each other. Saying, this is the most boring Oscars of my life. Was like, Oscars so boring? <laughs> and then that happened. And yeah, I was actually in America, and I could have watched it in real time, but I was too bored to watch it in real time. So, <laughs> but thank you very much. So Loveless is out already. Isn't now it? I think or, um, now. or tomorrow uh, this week. Yeah, a Friday near you. <laughs> <laughs> now it is time for our non-anniversary section, which as we all know by now is the non-specific cultural event of a, a certain number of years ago. We've it's got, specific. Oh, it's, it's, it's specific in terms of it's, its just timing. Non, non it's just insignificant. <laughs> Maybe it's not specific in our minds. Oh no, you're right. It's got very clear parameters, this, this Technically, lot. Technically, it's it a specific, specific event, thing. but of limited cultural significance and probably not a sort of journalistically significant date in the mind yeah yeah and this this week we have another listener submission so thank you to peter selby for pointing out that 
It's been 32 years since Zamo Maguire went heroin on Grange Hill, precipitating the amazing Just Say No campaign, which I remember as a child, a song, a charity song, which they did, that was a bit like Feed the World, where all the children came off the show having had no vocal training whatsoever and held their headphones and sang into the microphones about the importance of, uh, you don't have to be part of the crowd, just be who you are and stand up proud. The video is amazing because they are, they're totally replicating everything you see from, from those kind of charity videos at the time. Why are they, why, why did everyone hold their hold their headphones like that Maybe was headphone a... technology so poor that the the kind of volume and leakage you know no one had bose headphones Possibly. so they all had to just ram them into their it's ears. also a way of making the very boring paraphernalia of the studio look slightly more interesting yes, that's isn't it? true it's like in the folk clubs you and mccall used to press his ear in with his hand to sing because he's not doing anything else that's something to look at so ryan do you remember the just say no campaign i, I do i'm exactly the right age i think it, if it was 32 years ago yeah. then yeah i was 14 so i think the year before that uh, it must have been on Grange Hill, that storyline. There was, a, I remember, such a skillful piece of misdirection because you knew when that particular series started that it, there was going to be a drug storyline. Someone was going to be addicted to drugs. And there was a new kid in the school called Danny who was very shifty looking. And everybody was like, oh my God, it's going to be him. It's going to be him. Rather than Zamo, who we'd known all along. Yeah. That was such a brilliant bit of misdirection. I remember it all. Just the, the conversations at school the next day, we were all just so Did you shocked. buy the single? I didn't, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, I bought plenty of terrible seven-inch singles, usually novelty <laughs> records, but that wasn't among them. So what happened in the actual storyline? Is it one character sort of slowly getting embroiled in? It's heroin, Over right? Over two it's seasons. Like, yeah. It's a two series, yeah. Yeah, my... See, I, I'm surprised you know, to, to hear it was two seasons. I guess everything's telescoped in your in your memory. My my memory is that it was just a sudden reveal that it was that it was Zamo, but you know, it must have, he must have been showing signs. On the, <laughs> the, you know, I just didn't Antisocial. pick up. Antisocial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I the, find the, it really frightening because I was a, well, I was like, if what's thirty two years ago? I can't. I'm no good at maths. What is it like? Nineteen eighty six. Yeah, yeah, 80, yeah, yeah 86. So I was like five and I remember this storyline, didn't watch Grange Hill. It was that collision of adult scary thing and children's um, setting. Grange Hill was really always freaked me out. Yeah, of, of, at that age, it must have done. Grange Hill was always it was the it was the program that our parents didn't like us watching because we were going to learn words we didn't know or bad behaviour or something like that. Yeah. Maybe I just went to a particularly good school. Uh, <laughs> we were all well behaved, but um, yeah. So parents didn't, so that added an extra layer of danger: the fact that it was going to be about drugs. I mean, people were already smoking in it and kind of mildly swearing. And Anthony Minghella wrote the script, didn't he? I for know. a long time. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah, he worked on a lot of TV stuff. He worked on a lot of Inspector Morse as well and um, various things like that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. It was, I mean, my memory is it was great writing. I don't know how what it'd look like now. So, because Grange Hill went through a few different sort of iterations, didn't it? And I think this was possibly the beginning of the kind of issues-based storylines where, uh, which sort of by the, by the 90s, they were really, you know, mm. just writing to, writing to issues. The bleakness. Yeah. Now, didn't you discover a strange coincidence with the date as well? Oh yes, so um, eighth. So today is it the eighth today? It is the eighth today. So it's actually forty years since the the very first episode. Yeah, which is seventy eight. Thirty two years this month since the heroin. <laughs> forty years since the sausage was <laughs> thrown across the dinner hall on a fork. <laughs> or as Peter pointed out, the. Uh, uh, it put children off heroin until ten years later when train spotting came along. <laughs> so thank you, Peter, for that. And um, please keep them coming, the non-anniversaries. We like to hear your, your ideas.
Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. Thank you to Ryan Gilby for, for coming on and um, do look up his interview with the director of Loveless, which ran in the New Statesman a couple of weeks ago. Also worth checking out Helen Lewis's piece on Hamilton, which we talked about earlier. Kate, is there anything else we need to say? Rate us on iTunes, get in touch on Twitter. And as ever, we will be playing you out with the smooth tones of Pistol Jazz with their song Godspeed. Speed.